0: Well, we're going to be a reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 3. I'll invite you, if you can grab a pew Bible or find it on your electronic device, I'll ask you to turn your eyes to uh, verse 7. We're going to read verses 7 through 14. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you, I, I, I serve uh, as the RUF campus minister, which is Redeemer McKinney. Uh, They're denominational college ministry reaching out to college students over in Fort Worth. And so I was here over the summer. Uh, many of you are, are recognized, but for those of you who have found your way to Redeemer, uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be with you all again. We're going to consider this morning a brief but loaded passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so let's read that uh, together this morning. If you'll just read following along silently, I'll read Paul's words to the Galatians, and then we'll set it up and and dive into it. Here we go, beginning in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. This is God's word to all of us. It is given to us in love. Oh, we would do well to listen and to receive it. Know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, what do we know about God's Word? Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray together with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask now that you would come. That you would open up our hearts, our eyes, our ears, and that you would speak to us what you have revealed to us here. Lord, your servants are listening. We ask that you would speak. We ask that you would get um, in our hearts, O oh Lord, that you would get in our face if need to, so that we might see Jesus and that we might see him as beautiful, that we might see him as more believable, and that by seeing him, our hearts would turn away from the thousand different idols that we have that we think will give us life and instead to find life in him. We're praying this, Lord, hoping that you will meet us. And we ask that With confidence in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can be seated. Just a a brief reminder here about the book of Galatians. Just a word to kind of open us up and then we'll jump right in. I I do want to say that the book of Galatians is is a fantastic uh, book that really does begin to highlight some of the themes that we want to consider this morning. But for our purposes, I want to just highlight one. In the church in Galatia, Paul helped uh, minister to the people there. He um, cared for folks. He saw them come to faith. And now that he has left this church, something has happened. Other teachers have come through town, and they're teaching a new teaching. One that is quite attractive, and one that surprisingly, much to the Apostle Paul's chagrin he has heard about, they are turning away from the message that he once preached. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. But it is in light of that teaching that Paul is going to write what he does to the Galatians there in uh, in our verses that we read. Now, I want to say a few things to the kids in the service. I like to do this. I think this is helpful even for the big kids who are older than 18. I want you to listen for a couple of things that you can pick up on as we go throughout the service. One, I want you to listen for uh, the language of a courtroom. You can write that word down if you'd like or just pay attention to that. A courtroom. Secondly, I want you to try to listen for a one-word definition of faith. A one-word definition of faith. And then lastly, I want you to listen for a story about Loldigox and the three bears. I said that rightly. I said that rightly. Loldigox and the three bears. I'm sure you're very familiar with that story. I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. Well, um, I want to begin by opening of this, out, out of a quest for the truth and from desire to elucidate it. That sentence right there, these were the opening words of Dr. Martin Luther's 95 theses, which were nailed to the castle door in Wittenberg almost 500 years ago, actually uh, in, in a few weeks here at the end of this month. And that hammer stroke heard round the world, as they say, began what theologians and historians call the Protestant Reformation. And while I'm I'm not a formal historian, um, the reformers did seek out to bring reform in the church by going back to the scriptures and making its teachings clear. Today we're going to look at, and we're in this the middle of this series, of looking at some of the anchor teachings, the anchor doctrines of the Reformation. Last week, um, obviously, Pastor Jordan spoke on the idea of or the anchor doctrine of Solus Christus. And today, we're going to look at uh, the one called Sola Fide. Now, my Latin is not that sharp. My wife, my wife tells me that from her Latin teacher that um, "simper Ubi Sub Ubi is something you want to remember. That is always wear underwear, apparently. And so, uh, you want to be sure you know your Latin, I guess. But Sola Fide means by faith alone. And we're going to take a look at why that's so important, or why that's so important this morning, because we're looking at the idea or the teaching of justification by faith alone. Now, Martin Luther himself said this about justification by faith alone. The church is founded on and consists in the doctrine of justification alone. So it's a very, very critical and important teaching that we want to look at, and we're going to do so through this material here in uh, in Galatians. And it's in this teaching found here that an Apostle Paul is addressing the tendency in each of our hearts to think that fellowship with God can be earned or merited by something in us. And I actually want to suggest to you this, that this is actually something that all of us, if we think about it and we're honest, we actually want I would rather love have a list. Just tell me what i got to do. Because if I'm doing it, guess what? You owe me something. And moreover, moreover, besides that, as one pastor put it, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it only works for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. You see, that's what grace really is. It comes to the needy. But you know what? You know where that eventually lands us? It lands us exactly right where Martin Luther was himself. You see, he saw God as never being satisfied with our efforts. The bar was too high, right? The, uh, the requests were too much. The purity that was required was too clean. And so do you know what he said? He wrote this. He said, although I, an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, I had no confidence that my merit would ever assuage him. In other words, that it would ever make him happy. And then he wrote, he wrote this. Therefore, therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated him. I hated him because the standards were too high. And so what was it then, friends, that Martin Luther would come to see that would so warm his heart that would so course through his veins, that would set off a reformation with the pounding of a hammer that leads all the way down to McKinney, Texas on this bright sunny day. Do you know what it was? It was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that alone, dear friends, can liberate our hearts. So here today in Galatians chapter three, we're gonna consider three things. and I'm just calling it one, two, three. One, two, three. It's pretty simple. Why? One, we're going to look at the one thing, the one thing that we're after. Two, the two ways of getting there. And then three, three liberating surprises that we'll see in light of it. So here it is. The one thing we're after, the two ways of getting there, and then three liberating surprises that we'll see in light of it. And here's what I hope that you'll see this morning. Here's my hope for every single one of us. That you will see, maybe for some of you, for the very first time, what Paul saw, what Luther saw, and that is what God in Christ has done for you, that all you have needed has actually been given to you as a gift. That would be good news this morning. Let's turn our eyes and let's read together what the Apostle Paul has to say. I'm turning your your eyes directly to verse 8. and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, That's the key phrase there, this idea of justify, of what we are living for. And a little bit of context is important for us to understand if we're going to know what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in this letter. And what was it? Well, I mentioned uh, just a moment ago the idea of the error of false teachings that had come into the church. And this was the error, kind of a big word, of the Judaizers. Now, who were the Judaizers? Well, they were folks who said that, great, Christ is wonderful. Faith in Him is fantastic. However, if you want to be recipients, if you want to be heirs of all that the Old Testament promised, you not only need faith in Christ, but you need something a little extra too. It was a Jesus plus mentality. And what was on the other side of that plus? It was that you must go back and observe as well the obligations of the law. Most particularized or most forward would have been the idea of circumcision. And so, said the Judaizers, if you want to receive the blessings of Abraham, if you want to be called one of his children, one of his heirs, which, by the way, is what the Messiah had come to do in the first place, then faith in Christ is good, trusting in his work. But you must add to that the observance of Torah. And so Paul looks at that, and he pounds his fist symbolically. And he says, if anybody comes and teaches you another gospel than the one that I told you, let him be cursed. And so Paul is not a happy apostle. Because the people that he has loved have, guess what? They've begun to turn back to turn back to a way of life that is not only only contrary to what Paul has taught, but is contrary to the very core teaching of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Listen to what one scholar, F.F. Bruce, put it. He put it this way. It's sort of an extended quote, but it's worth listening to. The Galatians were being urged to become children of Abraham by adoption, since they weren't his children by natural birth, And this, they were told, involved circumcision, just as it did for proselytes from paganism into Judaism. Paul maintained that, having believed the gospel and received God's gift of righteousness, that they are Abraham's children already in the only sense that matters in God's sight. In short, the thing that the false teachers were teaching And what Paul vehemently attacks and seeks to correct, here it is, is how, write that word down, how is how one is found acceptable in God's sight. And this this idea of being found acceptable in God's sight is what we call the doctrine of justification. You see it right there in verse 8. Take a look at it. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's the aim, the justification of the nations, not only Israel, but the world as well. And look down at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. We're going to come back to it in a moment. The point is, the way that you have right standing, that's the thing that we're after. And here's the thing, that both the Judaizers and and the Apostle Paul, as we're about to see, were after that very one thing that right standing that right standing the idea of passing scrutiny before a set of eyes let me show you how this works out in everyday practice i read a story not too long ago um, about the idea of passing scrutiny you see scrutiny is an odd thing isn't it we long for the gaze of others and how on the one hand that can be very exciting and, and attractive and something we long for. It's encouraging. We get support from it and attention. But on the other hand, it can be quite unbearable. A few weeks ago, the chef of a high-end fine dining establishment decided to make a decision that stunned the fine dining world. Now, you know I like to eat. You can go back and listen to Summer Series on this. But the chef, Sebastian Brahe of Les Restaurant, He asked to have his rating the highest possible, which was a Michelin three star. He asked to have that taken away. He didn't want it anymore. No moths. So this, in one of the top kitchens of the world, the chef has said, please take it away. Now, if you're somebody who exists and operates and lives in the world, that is the thing that you want to have. You want to be noticed, you want to be recognized, you need this rating and this approval. I mean, it's the NFL of playing football. It's the Pulitzer Prize of literature. And the question is, is when asked why he wanted it taken away, here are his words. I will be able to feel free without taking, without asking myself whether my creations will please the Michelin judges. Now that's telling, isn't it? In other words, he's saying, I can't bear it anymore. I can't bear to live under the scrutiny because their opinion of me is what makes me. It's the thing that defines me. Without that rating, I'm nobody. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be a restaurant's rating to do that, does it? It can be anything. And we're going to see in a moment how that fleshes itself out. But here's the thing that I want you to see. I want you to see... That justification, the idea of passing muster, is something that all of us long for. Listen to what the playwright, the playwright George Bernard Shaw, he once wrote The lives which have no use, no meaning, no purpose will fade out. You will have to justify your existence or perish. That's telling. That's telling. And you might say, well, that seems a little heavy-handed there, preacher boy. Is that just sort of, you know, preacher uh, hyperbole? And I want to say it's not. I want to say that it's not because it doesn't matter if you're somebody who is religious, if somebody who is secular, somebody who's here is exploring the truth claims of Christianity. You're always living for the gaze of somebody. There's always something out there that you're trying to say, do I matter? Am I worthy? Does my life have significance? It might be through your job, the promotions that you get, right? It might be seen as being the most accepting and friendly person in the neighborhood. It might be the most liberal person with your finances to give away. But something, something is giving ultimate meaning and value to your life. Something is justifying you. And it's the thing that we're after. And here's what I want you to begin to see. What lies at the very heart Of the Reformation is how God Himself thinks of us. And for Luther, because it was so for Paul, because it was so for Jesus Himself, here it is, justification is about a new status. It was declarative. It was a naming. It was legal and definitive. It wasn't something that was poured into us, something that helped us along the way to become righteous and holy. That was the thing that Luther and the reformers stood so adamantly against, but rather that justification was like a courtroom. The gavel, boom, has been landed, kids, and here comes the verdict, not guilty or righteous. And this is what Paul is trying to get us to see, that God in Christ did not just open up a door of opportunity to us, he brought us all the way home. And what it meant was that because of Christ's work for us on the cross, alone, the triune God grants to us a new status. One that we can't get to and screw up. Isn't that great? That we have a Redeemer at the right hand of God the Father, who is our right standing in Jesus, that we can't get and mess up. And what that means is it's something that you can't lose. And so here's a test for you. A sort of test of application. If somebody were to ask you the question today, are you a Christian? How do you answer that question? It's a warning because if it comes out something like this, well, I sure am trying. I'm trying to live a good life, I'm trying to be a nice person and trying to go to church and read my Bible. Paul would say, you misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to have a new status, dear friends. To go from condemned to righteous. It is more than just forgiveness. It is a new right standing before God and one in which all of our sins have been laid on Christ and His record is imputed or given over to us. And that ought to make your heart sing. Oh, that the Lord would open up our eyes to see the beauty of that. But here's the thing. Interestingly, the false teachers, the Judaizers, and Paul, like I said, are concerned with the same thing. How one finds acceptance and right standing with God. So where's the difference? That's where we're going to take us to our second point. The two ways of getting it. And this, in many ways, is the meat and potatoes of the text. You see, the Judaizers were saying that it was by a Jesus plus mentality. Jesus plus observance of the law. Did you see it right there? Paul goes back and he contrasts these two ways. Verse 11, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12. It's all over the place. Let's just look at it. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law... Paul says what? Are under a curse. For it is written that everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a perceived way from the Old Testament that if you want to be righteous with God, you've got to be observant for every jot and tittle of what the law says. And he says to live that way actually a curse. Why? Because you can't do it. You fail every time. The law is too high and so the standard's too great and that's what made Martin Luther go, I hate God. I hate him because the standard's too high. I'm not good enough look with me again down in verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by works of the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And boom, there's the contrast. Works of the law and by faith. And what he is saying is, is Paul absolutely shuts down this notion of being able to live and to find righteousness by living by the law. In other words, he's going to say this. It's a fool's errand. Don't try it. If you do, I'll tell you where it goes 100% of the time. Death. Spiritual death. You see, to rely on one's works is death. And instead, there is a way that leads to life. And what is it? Well, Paul tells us right there. He says it's by faith. It is by faith. Did you catch it there? But the law is not of faith, verse 12. The one who does them shall live by them. He's highlighting the old way. But he says this, that verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from that curse, that death sentence, by doing what? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. What is Paul saying? He's saying that Jesus himself, by hanging on his tree of the cross has become the curse that the law foretold that we would be under and that we would actually be. Christ has become that for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, which is that righteousness, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, I know that was a lot. So let me see if I can just break it down a little bit with a little bit of clarity. Paul is saying there are two ways. One of them's not really a way, but for the sake of the text, okay? The way that we find justification is by we can either try to do so by observance, by religious observance, by by moral observance, and to say, God, look at how awesome I am. And God's going to say, away from me. It's not going to count. Or by faith. And so we need to look, we need to look and consider what faith is. What is saving faith? You see, I think sometimes of like the, uh, the base. it's playoffs time, right? It's playoff time in, uh, in baseball. And I can remember many years ago, I was watching the uh, Boston Red Sox, I believe this was in 2004, they were down three games in the American League uh, p- uh, pennant race to the Yankees. And there was a guy at three, uh, three, games down, he was holding a sign that says, you gotta have faith, right? You gotta believe. You gotta have faith. And what was interesting is, the Sox actually came back 1-7 straight and won the World Series, so, the point though is, is this, is that the point that he's trying to get across is that to have faith is to believe. But it's not just to believe in, in something um, that, something that is intellectually true, but, but true saving biblical faith is, is this idea of a heart trust. Listen to what one writer, John Frame, writes. He says, saving faith receives the sacrifice of Christ as our sacrifice. Push pause for a second. So faith is always not indiscriminate in what it reaches out to. It's actually, it's reaching out for something, and it's, and it's out for Christ. And this is what the rest of the quote says. Saving faith receives the sacrifice of Christ as our sacrifice as our only basis for fellowship with God. I love that definition. Think about it like this. You want to know what faith is? In one word. In one word, faith is trust. And it's not just an intellectual assent. Remember what the Apostle James says, right? The demons believe and they what? They shudder. So even the demons believe that God exists. That's not the same thing as faith. But, here's the thing I want you to see. The idea is that saving faith, when we, when we receive, when we trust, when we welcome, it's, that's it. That's it. it. It's nothing. It's nothing as it were. All you need is nothing, as the saying goes. All you need is need. And the idea is that faith comes with open hands. That it receives in that way. The point is is this that Paul is trying to say is that it has always and ever only been through faith even since Abraham. The way that Abraham was credited as righteous was not because of circumcision and the Jews missed it and the Judaizers missed it. The way that somebody was made righteous was because of faith. Because they trusted, because they received, because God made a promise to Abraham and he received it. And so this leads us, dear friends, to I think three surprises that you see. Three surprises that you see from this amazing doctrine of by faith alone, justification by faith alone, sola fide. And what is the first of those three surprises? Here it is. The first is that you were actually freed from faith in faith. You're freed from faith in faith. And you might say, what's that? What's that mean? The doctrine of justification by faith alone is saying that we trust in Christ to save, not in our faith to save. Listen to what one writer writes. It is not faith that saves. This is B.B. Warfield. But faith in Jesus Christ it is not, strictly speaking, even faith in Christ that saves, but Christ that saves through faith. The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith or the attitude of faith or in the nature of faith, but in the object of faith, the thing that we trust in. Okay, so here's the story. Have you all heard the story? This isn't original with me of uh, Loldy Gox's expedition team and the three bears. You see, it was John Loldy. I'm making this up, okay? Uh, John Loldy and Evan Gox that were an expedition team in the late 1800s. And they were exploring the land of Alaska. And it was in the cold and they were warming themselves by the fire when all they see off in the distance is three bears charging down on them. They're coming after them, right? And so what do they do? They pick up their packs and they take off They take off running, and lo and behold, they come to an edge, maybe about as high as the pulpit is down from the ground. And there's a river across from here to the back door, and it's frozen solid. Well, Goldie says to his friend, Goldie says to his friend, Gox, he says, we can't make it. It's not cold enough yet. That ice won't hold us if we cross it. Well, his partner looks back, sees the three bears charging, and he says, I don't care. It doesn't matter if that ice is going to hold us or not. That's our only route Salvation from the bears. So they scurry down and they go across and they're rescued, saved from the bears. Now, here's the question for you Which of those two men were saved? Both of them were. Why? It was not because of their subjective understanding about the ice, it was in the ice. And in the same way, dear friends, it is not technically your faith that saves you. It is Jesus who saves you. And it's all that is needed is a weak faith and a strong object. Because a strong faith in the wrong object is death. And Jesus himself says, this size of faith, the size of a mustard seed, is enough to make a mountain hop into the sea. And dear friends, what that means is is you do not have to chase for the rest of your days a spiritual high so that God will look at you and say, boy, they're really on fire for me and therefore I'm really happy with him. Instead, don't you know that Jesus is tender with weak faith? Don't you know that he is one who meets us in our weakness? And He meets us in our doubts because He is the strong Savior who saves us. That is the great hope and the promise of we do not place our faith in faith, but we place our faith in Jesus. Two more things to take away very, very quickly. First of all, I mean, secondly, it means that the nobodies, the nobodies get in. That if salvation is by faith alone, If it's by faith alone, it means that failures find their way into the kingdom. And all you have to do is look at Luke chapter 18 to see the Pharisee and the sinner praying at the temple. The righteous religious Ph.D. guy is saying, oh God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like other men. I'm so thankful I give away all that I have. Look at how awesome I am. The sinner says, Lord have mercy on me a sinner. And Jesus says, that man goes home what? Justified before God. And dear friends, here's what that means for you. The shame that you carry? The guilt that you have for snapping at your children? The weight that you carry on your shoulder for the for the fight with the spouse? All of the things that plague your conscience, do you not know that that is nothing for Jesus? And therefore, he says, bring it to me. Go to him with your nothingness, and he will give you everything. The nothings find their way in. And then lastly, something that is just something that you can take away from this, that you now have fuel and power to live for Him when this begins to get down deep in your bones. Others smarter and more brilliant than me have said this, that we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And that comes from texts like Titus chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, that grace received by faith is not opposed to effort in the Christian life. It is only opposed to earning. And I love the story of my friend Scott Rowley, who is a pastor back home, for me. He was talking to a man, he he being the pastor, he was talking to a man that had said, You know what? I really don't like that I have got to share my faith, that I've got to evangelize people for God to accept me. And he said, You know, you don't. <laughs> you don't. That's not what it makes you acceptable in God's sight, is how many people you've witnessed to this week. That's not what does it. It's Jesus. It's him alone that does it. And him alone received by faith is what does it. Well, a few weeks later, a mutual friend of the two men walked up to Scott and said, man, what did, you, what did you do? This guy's been going around crazy sharing his faith with everybody. And he said, well, all I did was tell him he didn't have to. What happened? He was liberated. He was liberated to tell the one who receives us, apart from anything that we do, all on the merit of Jesus, and that began to liberate him. So here's what I want you to see. The only on-ramp in the Christian life for true obedience is to see what God has done for us in Christ. And when that begins to permeate your being, it's like wildfire, because you've been liberated to love. You've been liberated to obey. You've been liberated as it were, to walk in His footsteps. The faith that receives grace always, always extends it. And here is sort of the payoff pitch, I believe, for the entire morning. I want you to know that faith itself is not something we bring to the table. That faith itself is a gift. That is exactly what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, "...for by grace you have been saved," Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And I'm telling you the this that it's referencing is not the by grace that you've been saved. though That itself is a gift. But the actual referent of the this is faith. And the point is, is that the ability to actually receive is a gift of grace from God. So we talk about this a lot in our home. We go to Sonic a lot and we get milkshakes. Right? I don't know if you do this, but I love passing them back. Passing them back with their lids on. And all that goodness is inside. For me, it's chocolate malt. Okay? And bananas. And my kids, it's Slurpees and whatever else. And there always, always comes a cry because they can't get in there and get it. What do they need? D- exactly. Daddy, I need a straw. I can't get the stuff. I can't get the goodness. So I pass back the straw. Do you know what? Do you see the parallel? see the parallel? All the benefits all of the gifts, everything that you need, you stand on the outside and you say, how can I get it? How can I have it? I need it. And God hands you the straw. And he says, there's faith. Now receive. Now take. Take it all in. Because Christ loves to save sinners. He loves to save sinners, dear friends. And I want you to see that what Martin Luther saw was that once you see Christ doing that for you, you begin to be set free. I've gone over. I have a great quote. Do you want to hear it? Okay, okay, here we go. This is it. I promise. Promise. Just getting fired up here. The Reformation was a time when men went blind. Staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. That's grace right there. That grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness, nor badness, nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of superior spirituality could be allowed to enter the case. With a nod to Robert Capone. Dear friends, this is the great hope of the gospel that by faith you are saved. And that is a gift. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you know us, you know our needs. Please, oh Lord, help us to see what we have in Jesus as we turn our eyes now to the table. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, in light of this great news, would you sing uh, from hymnal number 528, My Faith Looks Up to Thee. and, And join with us in this singing.